0: Podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome to another edition of Roll On. Goodness is on the way, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology I've been rocking Ons high performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce Hey everybody, welcome or welcome back to another raucous rendition of Roll On, wherein to wit, the duly anointed, pod knighted, Sir Adam Skolnick and I dissect matters top of mind, matters seminal and of great consequence and matters perhaps specious, whimsical and or vapid, depending upon your vantage point, we also do a wee bit of show and tell, and of course, answer your questions <laughs> from Scottish our voicemail. Man, did
1: a Scottish man write this copy for know. you? I didn't realize. I, I was
0: feeling, you know, <laughs> free with the pen when <laughs> I came up with this. I like it. Yeah, I didn't realize I was a pod night, but I appreciate it. Or you could do the whole podcast in that accent. How about that, would get, that? I, think I challenge you'd lose you.
1: Lots of listeners. It would not be mate. good, right? Um, I do. You know, what? I speak to dogs that way now. So as I'm running by, if there's a dog, I'm like, hello, mate. How are you? And the 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 dog owners love it.
0: This would fall under the specious (laughs) aspect of things to be discussed today, TMI, my friend. (laughs) Um, Listener questions, if you want your question answered, leave us a voicemail at 424-235-4626. So lean back, lean in, smash that subscribe button as the YouTube kids say. That is what they say, right? Is,
1: is it? <laughs> the only YouTube kids I listen, I I watch are 30 years old, Chad and
0: JT. You, yeah, well, they're like 14 though. <laughs> yes, I love right? them. Um, all right, well, let's get into it. I, I wanna kick things off with just a quick announcement. Voicing Change is back in stock. So for those of you who are new here, Voicing Change is my latest book. It's a coffee table rendition of the podcast featuring wizened excerpts and poignant essays and glorious photography from some 50 of my favorite guests over the last eight and a half years of doing this thing. We are ready to ship globally, direct to your coffee table or your commode, depending upon how you enjoy literature.
1: (laughs) I I enjoy literature on my commode.
0: (laughs) Plenty do, I'm not afraid to say. Yes. Uh, We have signed copies available, so to learn more and snag your tome, Visit Richroll.com slash VC, which is the only place you can get this book. We're not uh, making it available on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. This is a self-published thing. So again, Richroll.com slash VC. Adam, what's up? I like that you made that choice. Hmm. Well, you know, I get a lot of messages like, How come I can't find it on Amazon? So this is why. We have circumvented I can't the believe behemoth, Jeff Bezos is the text like that. <laughs> Yeah, it's because of a personal vendetta that I have with Jeff Bezos. No. Oh yeah, it's Bezos. Um, I'm good, man. Life good. is, life is, is
1: it's, it hasn't changed. Mm. Still, you know, still uh, mostly at home. Um, it was has able to changed get... though.
0: What? It has changed.
1: Well, everything because has nothing changed is and yet static. nothing has changed.
0: The universe is expanding, Adam. <laughs> it's
1: expanding yeah. in front of my eyes. As
0: is your consciousness. I'm not so sure about that.
1: Really? Yeah, I don't wanna be. Is your
0: consciousness contracting?
1: It just depends on the night's sleep. Yeah. Like today I feel feel like my consciousness has expanded. Mm. Yes.
0: I didn't sleep so well last night. So
1: it's a a narrowed.
0: Yeah, the wind, it's been so crazy windy here. And for some reason, the wind keeps me awake at night. It does to me too. And the full moon, I never sleep well. So we're just past a full moon. I never like the day before a full moon the full moon evening, and then the following night, every month I have, it's a weird, like lunar gravitational pull. I don't know what it is, but I have restless nights every time. If anybody out there knows anything about why that might be, I actually am getting Matthew Walker on the Mm -hmm. podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, We have him scheduled sometime in the next, Couple of weeks. He's the guy who wrote Why We Sleep. He's like the leading sleep expert. That's that's gonna be my first question for
1: him. Well, Chinese medicine has like considers wind in in like well being. It considers elements like that, and I think Ayurvedic medicine does as well, if I'm not mistaken. So, experts chime in. Right.
0: I think your consciousness is expanded
1: based well, upon you. that response. I think just but based on my but, but yeah. how does my consciousness look? Because that's what's really important. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think you're looking fabulous today. <laughs> Good. Um. Yeah, the weather's been, I mean, other than the wind, the weather's been great. I'm enjoying the new studio. I'm excited about all the pods that we've been producing. I Dude, mean, you, a you got your hero going, right? We had Raghunath, which was great. It was so fun talking to him. Steven Pressfield, personal hero, Jedediah Jenkins, all Amazing. stellar What a, What a
1: great lineup so far, just this it's year. Cool.
0: Yeah, and we've got exciting new people on the horizon. Also been working on some compelling new top secret projects that I'm not ready to discuss quite yet, yes. but that has me getting out of bed, pretty pumped up it's, for it's the day exciting. lately. Yes, um, Feeling fit, feeling grateful. So something must be wrong. How's what's going on with the back? Back is feeling okay. I've been getting some good work on it from my man, Lawrence Van Lingen, who's really been helping me out with my posture and my, Pelvic placement, all these like things that he's been doing subtle changes in how I move and run that seems to be helping. So yeah, man, I feel good. Nice. Speaking of feeling good, we're one week out from the Goggins 4 by 4 by 48 challenge. So we gotta check in on, on where you're at with that physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, consciously.
1: Okay, where should we start?
0: I don't know, you tell me.
1: Well, I'm spiritually dead, so let's not go there. No, I'm just <laughs> okay. kidding, getting folks. Uh, I feel maybe good.
0: maybe that'll maybe that'll be you know good for getting you through the challenge. <laughs> um,
1: okay, so first of all, Nicholas Ramirez has has come in hot mm. with some great coaching in the good. last uh, couple of weeks.
0: He snapped to it after the last podcast.
1: You know, here's the thing about podcasting, as you may be well aware. Um, you don't always say what you what you want. It doesn't come out right all the time, and mm-hmm. then it's like out there, and people listen to it. Right. Um, I've yeah, I have a little enjoyed. experience with this. Yes, yeah, so that's what I'm saying. <laughs> you, you, do you experience podcast regret the next day?
0: <laughs> not often, but it certainly has happened. And so, now we're in such a you know hair trigger world right. that you know I feel more cautious than I ever felt before. Yeah, not that like I don't know what I would say that would be that controversial. Well, all,
1: all I said in relation relationship to Nicholas was that he wasn't really doing a lot of personalized coaching. And mm-hmm. mostly I was just getting stuff through the app, but that was okay. Cause like I actually liked that. And so mm-hmm. that's what I didn't say. Cause I actually personal coaching feels <laughs> feels kind of intense for me. And I actually <laughs> yeah. like kind of just doing my own thing, give me a workout to do, and then I can make it work and do it. And so I've actually really enjoyed it and it has helped my fitness overall. Mm-hmm. But then once he heard that, yes, he kind of is like,
0: Thursday person. morning, he, he the phone's ringing. He, what do you he mean? Wanted to
1: talk, and he, <laughs> no, not so much that he was like he felt bad, which mm. I didn't want him to feel bad. I mean, he's got a million right. things, and 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 it's it's great just to have the team end bowl workouts, but he has been he's been tailored some stuff. So it's kind of been a combination of stuff you've suggested, he suggested, and and David suggested to me. Um, so on, I guess it was a, a week ago, Sunday or Saturday or Sunday, I did my first simulation, which was um, three times every four hours. Mm. Um, He suggested instead of doing a two and two and two or whatever Mm -hmm. to do three, four, five. So I did that. And that included the five mile at night, which was my first night run because I never really run at night. Um, I I don't know the last time I had run at night uh, where I started out at night. Uh, And and so that was great. That was a good little beginning. Um, And then just Friday I did Four four three three, Um, he wanted me to do four 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 four, but then uh, David thought it'd be better because he knows my foot situation just to do three threes, Mm -hmm. you know four threes. But I decided to do a little bit of 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 kind of a mix. I did Mm -hmm. four four three three, starting at um, noon, no starting at uh, eight in the morning or eight or nine, Mm -hmm. and then every roughly three to four hours. Right. So I did the last one at night.
0: That's great, man. And I felt strong. How that feel?
1: I felt really strong. Like I felt like my fastest miles were the last run and I wasn't going fast cause I'm doing yeah. zone two, but like I felt strong, like I could have done another run. So I feel like the first day, I feel very prepared for the first day. Like uh-huh. I, other than I'll have to grab sleep, but other than that, I feel like six fours is, is not going to be extremely difficult mm-hmm. for me, barring any sort of weird mishap right. where I step off a curb and hurt myself.
0: So this kicks off Friday. Friday at 8 p.m. Friday at 8 p.m. So yeah. this podcast goes up Thursday. So it'll literally go up. People will be consuming this yes. on the eve of
1: the launch. And I will do some Instagram stories. So David's gonna do every, every run, he'll be doing something. I'll be watching his, and then I'll do something either before or after a run. Right. Um, probably after is probably when I'll check in mostly because I wanna be, Connected to him, there are five hundred. David just posted about this. There are five hundred people who've already signed up through his website from forty-five countries. I I heard wow. from someone from Iceland uh, through Instagram messaging just now. Who um who they're there's two people in Iceland that are going to do it, but forty-five countries, literally. How many people involved. total? Just the five hundred that we know of because they've messaged through the mm-hmm. at, through the website. But really, you're not supposed to post about that you're gonna do it, you're supposed to post about that you've done it. So he uh-huh. wanted people to do it that way, but people have been doing it pre, you know right. ahead of time, which he's embraced. So it's it's a whole worldwide movement really of people doing this. I think it's really cool.
0: It is very cool. Yeah. It's it's so wild how uh David has been able to just marshal, you know, this massive following of people to get on board with something challenging and hard like this. It's amazing.
1: And yeah, and and you know, he was talking about it the The unifying aspect, how mm. if if people just want to focus on getting better and doing something hard for themselves, and that it becomes a unifying thing that with that people from all over the world, different vantage points, viewpoints, backgrounds, whatever political leanings can come together. It just shows that we are capable of coming together, right, which is cool. yeah, and it's it, this is in the name of really a, a very challenging thing. So the second day, I have no doubt will be extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not like going in overconfident at all, um, but I've got, I've got some electrolytes now.
0: I know I was gonna ask you if you've been practicing your nutrition and hydration.
1: I have, your, your sponsor sent me about 150 packages of electrolytes. Oh, Element? Element, so yeah. they're either terrified that I'm going to fall on my face at some point <laughs> or just want me to try it. So I use that during the sex. so the first, mm-hmm. The first simulation, I didn't hydrate very well. I didn't have it planned out very well. The second one, I I had the element stuff, which really helped. I hydrated and ate much more mindfully and it was working. And I have a dozen sweet Japanese sweet potatoes, those small ones that I'm gonna cook ahead of time.
0: That's good. I'm gonna
1: have a lot of avocados in the house.
0: Soak some dates too. Yeah, dates, I didn't get dates, I gotta Mm -hmm. get dates. That's great, man. Yeah. No stomach problems.
1: You know, it's funny. Good about this the the uh, Friday simulation. It just so happened I woke up with like a little bit of a weird digestive thing and one of those mm-hmm. headaches that's kind of like a like that those gnawing kind of almost food poisoning headaches. And I woke up with it and I went running and the first two miles of the first run, I I, I felt it and then I finally ran through it and then the second run same thing because I hadn't hydrated enough and after the second run I really made sure I I did two electrolyte. 16 ounces Uh and then that kind of washed it out Mm. and I felt great by the end. So yeah,
0: I mean, that's why the one of many reasons why doing the simulations are so important Mm. because you're putting yourself in the position that simulates what you're gonna feel like in that moment and you're able to test things like hydration, et cetera. The other thing that I thought that you said that was great is that you began a run and you didn't feel good and you kept going and that shifted. And I think that's a really important lesson for anybody who's listening, who you know is dipping their toe into the endurance world. There's gonna be days and moments and times, whether it's in training or in a race where you're not gonna feel good or you're gonna start running and you're gonna feel terrible and think, well, I'm, I, I don't have it, I need to quit. But if you just stay in it, you realize and you learn that things change and shift just cuz you feel lousy in one particular instance doesn't mean that that's going to persist like you can kind of work through that and you have these breakthroughs when you do these simulation weekends and you realize oh yeah I got I got through that I ended up finishing that run feeling better than when I started and that's very empowering in terms of providing you with the confidence and the experience to you know weather or something like this Well, thank you that's that's yeah. what I
1: felt I felt like okay the headache's not great, but it's not the worst headache I've ever had. So I'm gonna do it mm-hmm. and I'm gonna look at it. And I, we slept horribly the night before the baby was, was right. really restless. And so I felt like good, you know, like, you know, I, I felt confident, I'm like, this is a good thing. This will, yeah. sh- let's see how, if I can do it now. Right. So that's how the simulation started. And it ended like right. a lot better. So the
0: rough part's going to be those like ones in the middle of the night or in the early. That's going to be morning, tough you know? for me. It's yeah. going to be tough. I'm, I'm you just got to get through those. The
1: first night, I'm going to stay up to the midnight run. I'm not going to try to get any sleep until mm-hmm. after midnight, and then um, then do the midnight run. Then get get a little bit of sleep. Get up for the four. Get a little more sleep, and then mm-hmm. try to stay awake mm-hmm. all day.
0: Cool. That's the plan. Well, I've got a. Uh, a ride planned for Saturday, so maybe on Saturday I'll I'll ride down to your neck of the woods and and try to track you down. Hell yeah! And I'll do a little. That'd uh, be I'll amazing. I'll grab your phone and do the Instagram thing. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Well, speaking of riding, yeah. um, that's really been uh, something that I've been focusing on lately. I've just formed this new ambassador relationship with Specialized, Specialized bicycles. Yes. Um, that's which exciting. has been really great, and they've got me kitted out. On this new Turbo Creo SL, okay, um, and I put gravel tires on that, and I've been getting out on and riding on gravel for the first time. I've never I've never been a mountain biker. I've always right. been a roadie, right? Uh, but there's so much gravel and fire roads around where we live. So gravel
1: um, bikes are good for fire roads and gravel like those gravel. They're not roads?
0: meant for like super technical, you know, sort of mountain biking where you're like. Jumping over rocks and things like that—you know, those the the gravel bikes don't have like the shock absorption and that kind of like geometry, but they're great for just riding on dirt and loose gravel and the fire roads, basically, like the wide fire roads around. Yeah, Um, and that's been super fun and kind of a learning curve for me, but it's opened up like a whole new world. So I rode from my house, like I took. Dirt Mall Holland all the way to uh and down Mandeville and like into Brentwood and around Santa From your Monica. House. Yeah, like that's it was amazing. Super fun. And the thing How about long is that. It was this it was like a 50-mile ride. I did like a big loop. That's fantastic. Um but here's the thing, here's the thing. Uh so the Turbo Creo SL is an e-bike, right? <laughs> it's got a motor in it.
1: <laughs> is that one <laughs> the one you took? Right? Is that the one you took? So
0: um, yeah, so I took that. <laughs> and uh what's been cool. And interesting and new is the experience of riding an e bike, which is something I have no experience with and never thought in a million years that I would ever have an e bike. Like, I'm right. a, you know, I'm a fitness junkie. Like, right. I don't want a motor in my bike. I right. want to test myself, right? Yeah. You got to be some kind of lame to yeah. like put a motor on your bike. Don't say lame you'll get canceled. I would canceled. have never, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what the appropriate vernacular is anymore. <laughs> Just kidding. But, um, but uh, I had two experiences. One, I went up to Santa Barbara a couple months ago to hang out with Dan Butner. Yes. And he's got a bunch of e-bikes. Yes. And he's like, You gotta ride these, they're super fun. I was like, an hey, e-bike, really? And we took him out and we had a blast. Went all over Santa Barbara, up all these climbs, super fun. And then I had Brian Fogel on the podcast, who people know as the filmmaker behind Icarus. Yep. So he's a sick cyclist, like incredibly fit. He also made the dissident, the the Khashoggi doc that's um out right now, and he was the one who got me excited about this Turbo Creo. He's like, "You got to get this bike; it's the greatest thing." I'm like, "I don't need an e-bike." He's like, "No, no, no! It's so fun. You end up riding longer. You're riding, you ride more because it's more fun, and it allows you to go places you wouldn't ordinarily go, like right. going up these fire roads that are crazy steep that right. even if you just had a regular gravel bike, you might not ride up, and um and he's, he said that he's like increased his riding, like, I don't know, 30% from what he used to do because of this bike and he's able so to go out it, longer.
1: So do you use it So basically, like selectively?
0: Basically, we, I, I keep the motor on like the low, it has like different rungs of power. So I keep it, at the, I either turn it off or I keep it on the lowest rung and it just gives you a little bit of kick. So you're still getting a workout. It's not like you're not riding. Um, but then, when you hit some like twenty percent grade on a fire road, you can just cruise up it without wrecking yourself. And so, I've been out riding quite a bit, and I'm able to get a good workout, but not destroy myself. So I'm exhausted all day, right? And then wake up the next day and do it again. It's been like really fun. And again, it's something I never would have. I never would have thought that this would be something that I would be into. Yeah. But I'm really enjoying it. The only thing that I had to do is I had to decouple my. Um, bike computer from Strava, because I don't want any of these rides. It's like, I've got a motor assist. Like I can't have these <laughs> this stuff up on like, you know, Strava where they have segments and all you know of that. People, like it's, you know it's not legit, do that, it's like totally cheating. So <laughs> you know I'm not riding that. and I'm like feeling guilty. Like when I'm riding by somebody or some, you know, riding next to somebody, I'm like, that guy's got a motor. Like how lame is that? Right. But I'm actually having so much fun with the whole thing. And I, I want to just cool. thank, I want to thank Specialized. Like I'm excited about this relationship. and appreciate the gear. Um, it's a heavy bike though. You, you, it's, couldn't, yeah, it's very you couldn't heavy. go up a hill I don't know what the it. weight specifically is of it, but yeah, it's like 26 pounds. Right. I mean, it's heavy to lift. Yeah, it's definitely like a very heavy bike. What's the charge on it? Um, I think you can charge it up in like six hours, something like that. And it also in one of the water, ca- water, water bottle cages, you can put, a secondary battery. Okay. Um, so you have actually have two batteries, like a backup battery. Does the crank uh, generate
1: any sort no, of charge? No, I don't charge? think so,
0: no. But the, the range is pretty good. I mean, you can, it, it obviously depends on on um, the power mode that you're on and how much pedaling you're doing versus how much the motor is doing the work. But it's got something like an 80 mile range. Okay. So, you know, I've gone out, like I did a six hour ride the other day, maybe two weeks ago, mm. and still had plenty of power to go when I, when I was done. Cool. So, Sounds yeah, fun. It's super fun. So I've been doing that, um, and also uh, amping up the strength training, which has been fun too. Oh, Good. Um, there's a uh, there's a gym near my house, one of those chain gyms, and they moved all their equipment into a parking garage. And mm-hmm. they have like, you know, they take your temperature when you go in, but it's essentially all outdoors and with with masks, and all the equipment is like spaced out over like a very large lot. Um, and I've been hitting that like a couple times a week. So that's been my thing. A little bit less running. I haven't been swimming very much. I mean, the pools are are tricky to get into right, right. now. Um, but the
1: ocean is cold, trust the me. The ocean is cold, yeah. yeah. I was just out I was there. with a
0: friend, my friend Drew the other day <laughs> and he's been out swimming. And he just, you know, with a wetsuit, a sleeveless wetsuit. It's like he said it's something like fifty-five or fifty-four. It was right fifty. Now.
1: It was fifty-five on Saturday, but then it got really windy again. Um, it was one of our friends' watches had fifty-one earlier in the week. I wasn't out that mm. day, but uh, it's been it's been
0: cold. Yeah, I'm gonna wait until it's about maybe 59, oh, he's like, I don't Kona. need that right he now. Went, you know? Yeah. <laughs> my blood is thin these days, my friend. Um, speaking of cold weather and fitness challenges, I do wanna shout out my boy, James Lawrence, the Iron Cowboy. Um, for those that don't know, James uh, has been on the podcast a couple of times in the past, um, most notably for performing one of the greatest feats in endurance history, in my opinion, which is this crazy accomplishment where he did 50 Ironmans in 50 states in 50 days, which I just, to this day, I just still have a hard time wrapping my head around. How do you Literally think traveling that? from state to state and making sure that he completed an Ironman in each of the 50 states, never missed a day, got the whole thing done. Did he
1: like cross state boundaries on the like the run leg so that he could start No, I think again? each
0: each Ironman was completed within the boundaries of okay. a particular state. They had an RV and a couple of vehicles. There were, you know, they, I think he started in, he started in Hawaii, then he went to Alaska, so obviously planes were involved. And then um, I think he went to Washington and then Oregon and worked his way down the West Coast and then across um, the states, yes. doing it um, doing it by by RV. And then I went to he he's from Utah. His fiftieth was in his home state, obviously near his hometown. Um, I traveled and ran the final marathon with him. I made a little video about it that's up on YouTube that I can link up to the show notes. Awesome. He came on the podcast before um, attacking this challenge. And then um, I did a second podcast with him at his house after he completed it. And so the reason I'm shouting him out right now is he's, he's doubling down. And today we're recording this on Monday. Today is the... First day of his 100 challenge, where he's going to attempt to do 100 consecutive <laughs> Ironmans in 100 days. He's not traveling state to state; he's doing okay. it all, you know, around his home. Right. Um, But so that means a lot more hills. He's got a pool. I mean, it's snowing. It was like 27 degrees in Utah yesterday, (laughs) but there's an outdoor pool that's heated to 82 degrees. Okay. Um, He's sharing everything on Instagram stories. He's got a bunch of kids and a huge crew and lots of support, and they're all kind of chiming in on his Instagram. You know, so you can follow along on his Instagram stories. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. He's at Iron Cowboy James, I think is his. Account on Instagram, so if you're not already following this guy, um, you should be. And this is going to be a, a, a very interesting drama that's going to unfold over a hundred days. I mean, it's basically right. a third of a year. It's going to take him to do this crazy thing. I feel shamed right now. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, but uh, you know, this guy's this guy's bred for this thing. This is a guy who I might butcher the story, but as a demonstration of his his sort of perseverance and ability to suffer. When he was a kid, there was some contest in his town. I think he's from Canada originally. Mm. There was like the carnival came to town and there was some contest, to who could ride the Ferris wheel the longest without getting <laughs> off. And he, I don't know how, I can't remember how long he stayed on it, but he just refused to get off it. Like he, he won. just won. So this is a guy who does not quit. And
1: we got to get him to the Huberman
0: lab so and find out
1: like how now he should, that, yeah, how, know, he, like what's going on in there.
0: He should. So, anyway, yeah. um, I've had some texts back and forth with him, he's in good spirits, and I'm cool. excited to watch this whole thing unfold. And I was the first person, um, prior to him beginning the 50 50 50 to say, I don't think this is possible. Like, I told it to him, I was like, I right. don't just not because I didn't believe that he wasn't mentally capable or physically capable, but. There's so many variables with the travel in between states and logistics and, just and you, you innumerable knew, things that could go wrong and having that he done, couldn't
1: control. And having done, I mean, I tried similar. to do five and right. we
0: ran into all kinds of stuff that made it impossible to get it done in five. And he did fifty and met tons of obstacles, but was over able to overcome all of them and and complete it. And I just think that that's you know an unbelievable feat. And here he is now trying to do a hundred. So Crazy. so kudos. Uh, cowboy hat off to the Iron Cowboy and we'll be um, paying attention and following along.
1: And speaking of like persevering, even when you don't think you can like you don't feel good. I remember from your book, I believe it was the fourth Ironman where you thought you were toast after the swim. And yeah. You spent all that time in, in, in the shower. Or was it the? Um, that was was, it after, after the bike.
0: That was the yeah, like after the bike after on the, the fourth, bike, one, fourth one. Yeah, yeah, and I you really like, met my mate, and you just
1: decided, okay, I'll just walk for a little bit, but you for sure were done, and yet you weren't. And then your yeah, fifth one, you did, you did, you actually hammered it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's that's that goes to the point that I was making earlier. Yeah. like you just have to keep moving, you know, and these things shift. Yeah. And change, um, and that fourth one. I mean, a lot of that had to do with sleep deprivation. Yeah, right. <laughs> and also heat. And this is an interesting thing about about James. It's like, why is he doing this? March for like it's twenty seven degrees. He could. Why doesn't he start this thing in like May? You right. know, or later in the year, where he doesn't have to deal with snow and sub freezing temperatures, but. He answered this question the other day on Instagram. He's like, I do better in the cold and I, I, don't, I, I, don't, do, I don't do well in heat. So yeah, I'm running in the cold,
1: it, running in cool air is much easier for me.
0: Yeah, but yeah. would you rather there's, there's cool and then there's cold, Yes, you know, like 27 know degrees <laughs> doing an Ironman <laughs> is not, it you know, <laughs> I, that's in my book, I, you know, get me to Hawaii. Exactly, right? Yes, yes. Anyway, no we doubt. love you, James. Good luck with this. Good and luck, We'll James. be checking in. So let's take a quick break and we'll be back. We got uh, a couple big stories, uh, important stuff to talk about, and we'll see you in a few. All right, and we're back. We got two stories for the big story. Uh, the first one, Adam, why don't you kick it off? All right, well, I just wanted to just talk a little bit about
1: this hate crime spree that's happening um, to the Asian American community or Asian community across the United States. And what started, uh, I believe it started first in Oakland where there was a bunch of older elders just walking the streets and getting pushed over from behind or beat up um, or just, uh, slurs hurled at them, but a lot of it was violent. Like mm-hmm. people were getting pushed over, people were getting to the hospital with getting stitches, breaking bones. This was in Oakland, they caught somebody there. Um, but then in New York city, a lot of stuff was happening as well, Queens and in Manhattan, um, it was, just became this replication. And then it happened in San Diego. Um, and then, you know, I was saying it's nice around LA, at least, you know, we've been spared it and then Q, I believe it was yesterday. I'm looking at the LA Times story from the 26th, and the Buddhist temple in Little Tokyo, which anybody in the LA area knows immediately where that is, mm-hmm. was vandalized and they tried to burn it down. Uh, two wooden lantern stands were burned. Metallic lanterns were vandalized. It's at the Higashi Hong Anji Buddhist Temple, and I've seen it many, many times. It's a beautiful landmark building. And uh, listen. You know, I just find it appalling. First of all, that um, old people can't walk the streets without fear for their lives. Um, and, and it's it's reprehensible. But it's not something that hasn't happened before. We saw it after nine eleven with Indian American community and people of Arab descent. We you know we after Trump was elected, hate crime sprees spiked um, in those communities as well. Mm-hmm. And now it's, ha- it's landing on the Asian American community so much that Jeremy Lin, the basketball player, was called. The coronavirus on court during right. a G League, league game. So and
0: crazy. So does this track to the coronavirus, yes. or what is the genesis yes. it, of this? It, it
1: started, actually. If you look back in, you know, if, if you really, you could connect this more recent kind of rash of cases to right after lockdown. Mm-hmm. It was. It started to happen yeah. right after lockdown as well. So there was like, I think, a viral video of a woman getting um, called racial slurs on the subway in New York, right when it was really hitting New York City. So it started then and now it's just kind of uh this new rash of cases has happened there are leaders um in the community lisa ling cnn she mm-hmm. has uh she's doing a lot of uh of kind of highlighting these cases on her instagram andrew yang spoke about it i mean it's it's a major major epidemic um it's appalling and uh just wanted to urge
0: people. Yeah, I mean, there's not, what, what is there to say about it? Yeah. Like, don't be an asshole. Like what yeah. is wrong with people? I don't I, know. You know I, I don't understand it. And I, I would suspect that if you drew the Venn diagram between the people who deny the existence of coronavirus and the perpetrators of, of this, type of crime there's going to be some overlap so does yeah. the coronavirus not exist or is right. it you know is it right. is it the fault of of asian americans who are citizens of this country i mean it's 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 appalling it's disgusting it's disappointing and disheartening that in 2021 we're having to contend with this kind of you know racial strife it's it's unbelievable
1: it's it's hard it's hard to fathom you know it's like look, you know, every day you wake up, you have a choice to make in your life. And the choice you're you're taught from the time you're a little kid. I mean, sure, some children don't get taught not to push people over when they're little, but like, even if you had the worst upbringing ever, if you get to the point where you're 15, 16, 17, and you think it's a good idea to push over an old person kind of trying to make it down the street, I just don't know what to do with you. And it's like, so there's the hate crime aspect, and there's this elder abuse aspect, and it's all rolled up into one, and it's, that's why it's so horrifying. I think um, you know that's why it's even more horrifying uh, from behind too. And so like the the cowardliness that's involved here, and this, um, you know, we're better than this, but we're not. So it's like mm-hmm. it's like the human being should be better than this, but we're not always. And yeah. um, this is our all of our responsibility to fix this problem, um, and that that is. Calling it out if you see it, defend people who are getting abused. Mm-hmm. And th- there was one video in Queens where this guy like shouldered through an older woman, pushed her down, and nobody did anything. Like he just kept walking down the street. You know, it's yeah. like,
0: it's, it's, uh, honestly, like I don't know what to say because I can't wrap my head around like what would motivate somebody to do that. Yeah. You know, it's people that are you know, angry and disenfranchised and looking for somebody to blame. And they see a helpless person who's an easy target and that becomes the locus of their their rage. Yeah. And it's inexcusable. And we're seeing this um in addition to this Asian hate crime spree, we saw it with the black surfers in yep. Southern California recently yep, as well. At El well. Porto. Yeah. And so, the
1: same, same thing, a black surfer was, hassled and splashed and called racial epithets and nobody in the lineup came to his defense. Mm. And so then there was this paddle out and uh Right, I saw that. and and that was good. That was well attended. It was hundreds of people I think came mm-hmm. down to support the black community there. And you know, look, we are a melting pot. We are fed from all sorts of different cultures. Surfing's a perfect example. Surfing is not a sport that originated in the white community. Right. It only exists because uh you know there was a a friendship tour from hawaii that came and and demonstrated it up and down the coast of california and then it, it became endemic here mm-hmm. but it's um look we we rely on each other we need to keep our radar up and so obviously your listeners aren't aren't this problem but i think it's incumbent upon all of us to be ready to respond
0: yeah, yeah. well said i want to um move on to yep. other issues that we got to talk about um the next thing is something that caught my eye and I thought was worth spending a few minutes on. Um, I was listening to Mark Maron's podcast and last week he had two actors from this new independent film called Body Brokers. He had Melissa Leo and Michael K. Williams. Mm. I listened to both of those and then was so intrigued that I went and watched this movie Body Brokers and it really struck a nerve with me. Mm. Less for the cinematic aspect of, uh, of the film itself and more for the issue that it's addressing. Essentially, it's a movie about a recovering junkie who's recruited to a rehab only to discover that said rehab really isn't about helping people, Mm. but it's actually a cover for a multi-billion dollar fraud operation that enlists addicts to recruit other addicts. And this is something that is going on in the treatment industry at large Uh, and is an issue that I think is under discussed, under addressed and in need of being (laughs) dealt with in a large way. And as somebody who's um, very interested in addiction, somebody who's been in recovery for many, many years and a product of treatment and a treatment center, a very good one, um, I'm well aware uh, and I'm steeped in kind of the recovery community here in Los Angeles, and in particular living, you know, sort of near Malibu, am also aware that Malibu has become this kind of rehab Riviera, where there's just tons of mansions that are now sober yeah. living facilities. And, and they're usually and McMansions. Have, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and I knew that on some level, this is like a money-making real estate play because you can lease these houses that right. have like 10 bedrooms Yeah, and rather than you know, rent them to you know a family uh, at X dollars. You can rent out each bedroom for you know, a crazy multiple on that. Right. Like, so instead of you like know, maybe $2,000 a bedroom, it, it goes for like $20,000 a bedroom. And so these things become money-making machines and that's why you're seeing a proliferation of them. So I knew that that was going on and I knew that there's a lot of sort of shady sober living houses and and treatment centers, but what I didn't fully understand or appreciate is the extent to which this has escalated into a full blown insurance scam that is generating billions of dollars. So essentially what happened is that when the Affordable Health Care Act was signed in 2008, it required every healthcare provider to cover substance abuse treatment, which is on its face, a good thing, right? right? It's like, we're trying to provide access to treatment for people that otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. But since that bill was passed, Nearly 2000 sober livings, 100 inpatient treatment centers and 200 detox facilities opened up in Southern California alone. So like 35,000 beds that need to be filled every month and almost 500,000 that need to be filled every year, which brings a profit of something like $12 billion annually Mm. just to Southern California. I think the market cap all told is something like $42 billion in Mm. the United States which is crazy. And so basically what what happens is, and what the film illustrates is how these sober living facilities and treatment centers are basically- um,
1: They rely on brokers, right? They rely on on these brokers
0: who go out into the world and find junkies. And then they're able to, even if these people don't have insurance, they have like these umbrella policies that they can get their name under so that they can get the insurance money and then they get them in the centers. And then every single aspect of that experience is monetized from the pillows to the sheets, to the urine tests, like everything that goes into that gets billed to the insurance company. And a lot of these not so above the board institutions, like crazy over bill, like, $600 $600 for a pillow or something like that. Like, and then the insurance company will say, well, we're not gonna pay 600, but we'll pay 200 right. or whatever for like a $20 pillow. And these things just start, they're like money laundering operations. And then it becomes about making sure that those beds are are always filled. So it's not about getting these people well, it's about keeping them sick. And, and you know, if they relapse, bringing them back in and then cutting the addicts in on on the vig so that the people that are in attendance in treatment are actually getting paid to go to rehab. They get a kickback. And then there's something about like the first
1: um, urine test has to be negative in order for them to build properly. So they want you to get high one last time before you get in. And I saw that in a couple of stories Mm -hmm. that was in the movie, but also in Florida that was documented in California. It's been documented. Florida and California, like South Florida and yeah, California are two. Yeah, South Florida, the
0: right. The, the sort of most high profile transgression mm. um, took place a couple of years ago with this guy called Christopher Batham. That, that story is It's a crazy, yeah. crazy story yeah. for people that are, are not familiar with it. It ended up being adapted into a series on Amazon called Bad Therapist. Yeah. But basically this guy Batham um, became director of a, of a treatment center in Malibu called Seasons. In 2010, he was pushed out after a bunch of heinous sexual abuse charges and he would do drugs with the inpatients. And I think he OD'd at one point. He then opens up this other treatment facility called Walking Miracles in Koreatown in 2011. Um, I actually have a friend, Cliff Brodsky, who was an investor in that.
1: In Walking Miracles?
0: Yeah, and ultimately Cliff, who I've known for many, many years, um, ends up being one of the whistleblowers on this whole thing, which is interesting. And in any event, Walking Miracles goes bankrupt. That's why Cliff started to come out and kind of tell the world what this guy, how this guy was really operating. Yeah. But then Bathum opens up community recovery in 2012 as this luxury rehab chain. I think it grew to something like 20 clinics across LA, all the way out to Joshua Tree. He had something like thirty million dollars in revenue in two thousand fifteen at a thirty percent profit margin, um, and when Cliff and others started talking about what this guy was actually doing, the FBI got involved. The LAP, LAPD got involved, started investigating him for his sexual relations and his drug use, and well, he assaulted how, him, right? Yeah, there was, yeah, there was, yeah. It, it, I mean, this guy was a bad actor across yeah. the board. And then in 2015, um, Hillel Aaron, who's also a guy that I've been acquainted with over the years, a, a journalist here in LA, wrote a cover story for LA Weekly that kind of went into the details of what this guy was actually doing. He wasn't, he was never a therapist. He was like a pool cleaner all the stuff that he was up to. Uh, and but ultimately, he did have
1: certification in hypnotherapy.
0: He did, yeah, he's a hypnotherapist, and, right? And,
1: and like, I think but he had, he
0: wasn't in recovery himself. He's never either. been through recovery. He, he didn't know anything about addiction treatment or anything.
1: And that highlights one of the problems is that a sober living house is different than an inpatient drug treatment facility in right. that you don't need to have a certification or something. Right.
0: And the the kind of if there's a genius to all of this, yeah. what he figured out was that if you combine a detox facility with a sober living facility, you're essentially running a treatment center without calling it a treatment center because treatment centers have to be registered and licensed and all this sort of stuff. So he was able to operate a, you know sort of quote-unquote lawfully. And then run all this money through this operation mm. to the tune of $176 million mm-hmm. <laughs> before the uh, the House of Cards just you know completely caved in on him. He's, and then
1: the victims of this insurance fraud are the insurance companies. That's why, right. that's why these things persist, because there's no, even though addicts <laughs> are getting um, some some are actually coming through these things and somehow getting sober but but a lot right. of people are suffering and there's i think there were 7 or I saw two different stats 7 and then 17 people who ended up ODing and dying yeah. after going through his programs yeah and um so yes addicts Will suffer through this, but no one believes the suffering of an addict. Really, when they're especially at the height of their addiction, it's like they're like not a sympathetic. Like you don't believe right, them. yeah, because yeah. their
0: trust has been so eroded. Right. So a couple things, yes, the financial victims in all of this are the insurance companies, but the addicts themselves are treated like chattel. Yeah, and there's no regard for their well being or their recovery. Yes, some of them do end up recovering, but the vast majority of them just get cycled through this system and are used like cash registers to, to do like a churn and burn, right? And six and months then,
1: sober, people are hired to yeah, them. Yeah, like, and that right?
0: was one of the things the movie did a good job yes. at, which was um, Melissa Leo plays like the therapist at the, at the and, and, you know, she seems well-intentioned in that regard, but when the protagonist of the movie, um, who's played by Jack, Jack Kilmer, who does a really fine job he with did this. A great job. He's acquainted with my boys, Trapper and Tyler. So um, Jack. Jack, when he's when he's basically saying I'm gonna leave, like he's gonna leave against medical advice. Um, Melissa Leo's character just says, Well, you know, I don't think that's a good idea, but okay. And there's no there's there's no um plan for any kind of long term treatment protocol to get him sober. Like He doesn't end up getting a sponsor or going to meetings. Like, there's nothing in place to make sure that he stays sober because that's not really part of what this is all about. Right. 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 So, ultimately, you know, I won't spoil the movie. You can watch it. It doesn't end well. Um, But, but, (laughs) you just um, spoiled it. (laughs) But, but, well, I can say it's a dark movie in that regard. It ends in the darkness. And I forget the actress's name who plays his girlfriend, but she was unbelievable at embodying, like, uh, you know, what a young addict is like in that place as somebody who's known many of those types of people. Yeah, she was good. Um, the other crazy thing is that a lot of these treatment centers end up hiring the addicts and alcoholics that yeah. you know quote unquote graduate from yeah. these facilities. So you're let, you're literally letting addicts run the insane asylum and if addicts are anything they're incredibly crafty and um, diligent and persistent at getting what they want. And yeah. so if you have any of them that are at all criminally <laughs> inclined, like this is gonna go off which, the rails, which right. is exactly what happens in the movie. Well, that's what's so interesting about, not interesting, but
1: what makes this whole story so crazy is that basically the mentality of the scheme that 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 perpetuates this fraud and, and is the same mentality. It's a drug dealer mentality. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's ever, required the services of a drug dealer, knows that drug dealers cannot be trusted. And yet yeah. some of these people who are building it literally have a dealer mentality when it comes to getting people in treatment, getting them out, not giving a shit what happens, just selling and making the money. And then these addicts are kind of acolytes of the drug dealer. I and mean, don't you think there's right, like they, a parallel there? Yeah, it,
0: it, they they become indoctrinated into this system. Yeah. And essentially many of them are, you know, relatively unemployable or yeah. they're felons or they've never had a real job and they get a taste of like, hey, we'll just do this, and it's like low-hanging fruit. And yeah. suddenly they're in this system, which is, you know, another aspect of the film's um narrative that I think is really potent. Um and I, I think on top of that, it's uh well, first of all to kind of wrap the the um the story about Batham, I mean he he ultimately, you know, gets indicted on 50 counts of fraud, grand theft, money laundering, sexual assault, rape. He's sentenced to, I think he was 20 years. No, it was 52 was years,
1: it? 20 years just for the fraud. Oh, okay. And then 30 years for the serial sexual assault. Right. Because he, he was convicted of yeah, that, yeah, yeah. seven women. So 52
0: years so to he's in prison now. Yeah. Um, but this is sort of the tip of the iceberg. Like this is still going on mm. and that's what's disheartening. And to your point earlier, there are addicts that are coming out of these experiences in these recovery houses and telling people like, look, this is what's going on, but nobody's believing them. Right. right? They're like, Yeah, whatever. Like you're you're not a trustworthy source. No one and I think those that, women. that allows this kind of thing to to continue to perpetuate. So I'm really glad that this movie exists because it's shining a spotlight on this. And, you know, like I said at the outset of this, like I care deeply about recovery and it's so disheartening. That it's been hijacked and abused to such an extent. You know, I had a life-changing treatment experience. There are good treatment centers out there. There are good people, well-intentioned people, um, who are providing really good care to but people that was out there. But that was before.
1: Now you you paid for that, right?
0: Yeah, I did. I yeah. did. And and and. But I'm saying that still exists now. Yeah. But I think anybody who's kind of looking at this. Um, needs to be more cautious than you used to have to be about what you're getting involved in.
1: So maybe you can explain, because one of the closing kind of thoughts in this movie is, it's not about like basically going to the bells and whistles kind of real world uh, house version of of a rehab center. And it's more about 12 step is free and 12 step has this incredible track record. So maybe you can explain the difference between those two and why 12 step for you, do you, you you think is still kind of the undisputed champ in terms of its effectiveness and, and what it does?
0: Well, 12 step is very effective. Like it works if you work it. Not everybody works it and not everybody gets sober. And when you've been in recovery, for any extended period of time, you end up going to a lot of funerals and you see a lot of people go out and not come back. So it's heartbreaking as much as it is life affirming, you know, it's, it's, it's real life and sobriety is hard and it's slow and it's not linear. And, you know, 12 step is not perfect in that regard. You know, if you look at the statistics, the truth of the matter is most people who try to get sober don't achieve long-term sobriety. They just don't, you know, and, and, uh, and that's just a fact. Um, but 12-step is free. It's open to all comers. It's decentralized. There's no money laundering going on. There's no boss, nobody's in control. And that sets it apart from the treatment, the, the sort of corporate conglomerate treatment you know, infrastructure, which is about making money. And when there's so much profit to be had, you're sowing the seeds for ultimately Corruption to exist. Mm. Um, I think, you know, my experience was about indoctrination into the 12 steps. And that was a part and parcel of my treatment experience, was, you know, learning what that was all about and then creating a long term care plan for when I got out so that I could maintain what I had, um, the, you know, the process that I had begun during that 100 day stay. It's not about, you know, massage and Reiki and you know going four wheeling and you know all right. like like some of these are are like luxury spa experiences right. and like i'm not against self care but don't be confused that's not treatment treatment no. is rolling up your sleeves and look there's a ther- in the movie you see there's a therapist and like that's great um, but also that should also be understood to sit outside of and be considered distinct from actually the process of of like working the 12 steps and working with a sponsor and helping newcomers and the like
1: one of the horrible outtakes of the Batham story was he would rape or sexually, otherwise sexually assault women. And then they'd end up in a survivors kind of support group within the sober living house. And he was running it. It's like unbelievable. Yeah, man. so that's how bad it was. Yeah. But so what you're saying is going to a safe space helped kind of removing yourself from the real world as it existed, because it was so twisted for you and you were kind of twisted up in it, helped to to put you in a place where you could receive some of this information. And then linking it to a 12 step program was like the bridge you needed to be able to work it in your yeah. daily life. I
0: mean, there was something very valuable for me to be able to opt out of my life and go someplace right. and focus entirely on getting well. Right. you know, But it was not a luxury experience. Like right. in the movie, he just kind of waltzes in, and they give him a bed. Like when I when I walked in, they strip search you, they go through your luggage, to make sure because you know people are trying to sneak stuff in. Um, they're not that kind. Like they threw me in a room, and they basically wouldn't talk to me for two days until I like dried out, mm-hmm. and it was pretty intense and hardcore. There was not a lot of coddling. We weren't going out on you know field trips or anything like that. Like it right. was really structured and it was more like a mental institution. And the, you know, it was a it was a great facility, but but it was kind of like being in a hospital ward or a right. dorm. It right. wasn't like being in a in a mansion with an ocean view. I mean, right. I could tell you that.
1: Yeah. And then the idea that like that's what's so heartbreaking about the story is that they are advertising safe spaces to try to get well and then it's anything but a safe actually you're the prey mm. you know it's, a, it's right. like it's like it's like twisted i, I didn't know. even know anything about this so uh,
0: i hope that story. there i hope that this movie will prompt more conversations yeah. like this and greater oversight because a lot of this stems from the fact that there is very little oversight when it comes to sober living houses yes. and detox facilities and there's just too much money to be made so we need regulatory oversight over how these insurance funds are dispensed to make sure that people who are in need of treatment can still, and detox can still access that. I mean, I think sober living facilities when done right are incredibly beneficial. Like Mm. the idea is you detox, then you have inpatient and then you have outpatient. And for a lot of people, they need a transition to real life and the sober living house provides that soft landing. So they can live with other recovering addicts and alcoholics while they go out into the world and try to get jobs, but they're still accountable and there are still right. certain rules. So to the extent that we can craft and create, um, some regulatory you know oversight over how are, how these things are are conducted to make sure that people are safe and that they're fulfilling their intention is what I think we all want.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think from my what I read uh that was p- the reason that there's so le- little regulation around sober living houses at least at the time was because They didn't wanna be a lot of red tape because the more red tape, the less, the more likely that someone in the neighborhood would find out there was a sober living house Mm. now in their neighborhood. Yeah, it's like a not in
0: my backyard thing. It would be a NIMBY
1: thing. And so it was, there there are good intentions Mm -hmm. that created this situation like Obamacare, trying to get mental health and drug addiction recovery right uh mandatory for these insurers that's a great intention
0: right and um, it can't be considered um a pre-existing condition
1: right and then sober living houses the intention was to make it discreet so that they could they could exist
0: right but the tragic thing is that you have addicts who cycle through this right. and become not only did they not get well they become calcified around recovery yes. because their experience was so bad and they realize like what's really going on there mm. and they become hardened to the process of recovery at all. And then lives are lost. Yeah. Lots of lives are lost. Well, so, thanks for
1: uh, bringing it to my attention. I yeah. can't believe I missed this entire story over the last several years. It's crazy, right? Yeah.
0: Um. All right, let's move on. What do we got? We're gonna do a little show and tell now.
1: Yeah, show and tell. Uh. All right, show and tell. Well, do you want to start with the new pod, the, the newest podcaster on the block? he's kind of a—you know—he's a small timer in the game.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you might have heard of him, though. The boss and Obama <laughs> getting together on Spotify. Yes. So listen, Barack. I know you were president for two terms, and <laughs> yeah. you're dashing and handsome and the like, but. I don't know what makes you think you can host a podcast. This is a skill, my (laughs) friend. It takes years.
1: Listen, you might have a degree in hypnotherapy, but you're not a podcast host.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I had to go to DeVry to get this job. I haven't listened to this podcast yet, but this was big news, Spotify. Uh, made a big splash with this Bruce Springsteen, Barack Obama podcast episode. Is it intended as just one episode or is, no, it, or is Obama gonna now like interview people? Like what's I, going on? I don't know if, if renegades is this shingle
1: where they're gonna just pair two people together and it'll right. become something or- Like if an it's iconoclast. Or, Remember or that show
0: Iconoclast yeah. in IFC where they yeah. get into like they had yeah. Eddie Vedder and Laird Hamilton spend right. the day together. Right,
1: right, right. Or is this renegades, does it belong? Is is Barack Obama gonna just interview other people? It's hard to know. Um, I listened to the first episode on the way here. And I mean, Barack Obama is very good. (laughs) I'm sorry to tell you, he's such a good interviewer, but you know, I'm struck by two things. One is Barack Obama is a great podcast host and he is the host, he's interviewing Bruce. Uh And it unfolds over the course of like, I don't know how many episodes, maybe a half a dozen. And the first one is about being outsiders, growing up as an outsider. And you know it's not like Bruce Springsteen hasn't told his life story before. right <laughs> He's told it over the course of many record albums i did I went to the River tour where he just talked about like he just performed that album and talked about his life. He did a Broadway show, and now he's in this, but every time he talks about his life story, it does feel fresh. I mean, he is mm-hmm. very gifted in that category. um and the two it's it's it is great to hear them together and and um and I found myself uh, suspending all those kinds of thoughts about uh, what this means for podcasting and just kind of enjoying these two people. Um, But uh, so it's good, it's good content. You know, Spotify is like, if you couple this with what Joe Rogan's deal was with the Bill Simmons ringer deal, it's incredible what they're doing.
0: They've really stepped up. Yeah, I mean, they have made big plays to try to own this corner of the internet and uh, and they're putting great stuff out there. So hands off to them. It's an interesting, move on behalf of Spotify. They're recognizing that owning a significant part of podcasting market share is in their interest for a number of reasons, not the least of which is when you look at how these tech platforms grow and become de rigueur, it's about it's about monopolizing your time, right? right? Like the idea, the sort of parameter is how long can we keep you on our platform? right? And when Spotify has um, listeners listening to music, they have to pay royalties out to the record labels. But when they have a podcast on, if that podcast is too, if they're listening to Joe Rogan for three hours, they're on Spotify for three hours listening to ads but they don't have to pay, I mean they paid Joe up front, but they don't have to pay royalties out. So right. it's in their interest to move towards podcasting and away from music as a way of capturing people's attention. And they've got this crazy war chest that they can marshal to get people like Bruce Springsteen and, and Barack Obama on their platform. Are they um profitable yet? I don't know what the numbers are, but yeah, you know, they're running it like a Hollywood studio. I right. mean Don Ostroff is is running, you know, podcasting for for Spotify and she's been magnificent at recruiting top talent and developing, you know, what they're you know, it's basically like Netflix for podcasting. Right. So
1: crazy. Good on them. And w- did you you had some other insights into this? Uh, you know, you you're reading something right before we went on. How does this help or hurt, kind of podcasting going forward? What was your takeaway on that? Yeah, it's
0: interesting. There's a there's a New York Times article today uh, by a guy called Ben Cesario. Uh, the title of the piece is called "Podcasting is booming, will Hollywood help or hurt its future?" I have you know a variety of thoughts on this. I mean, first of all, there's a conversation to be had that I'm not that interested in, which is if 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 a podcast is on Spotify, is it even a podcast? Because it's four walled there. It's not right. an RSS feed. And right. podcasting technically is when you can disperse an audio file uh, and make it publicly available across the internet. Uh, I, I don't think that that's an important distinction. I think we're moving towards this subscription future where everybody's going to be putting their stuff, uh, you know, like whether it's Substack and newsletters, like everybody is segmenting content behind a variety of subscription paywalls right, right now so it, it seems like this is just the natural evolution of things um, you know podcasting you know I I wasn't the first to start a podcast but I've been in it longer than most now eight and a half years almost um, and it's changed dramatically it used to be uh, a hobbyist sort of pursuit mm. uh, you know and and something that a lot of comedians were doing yeah uh, but now it's being monetized significantly across the board with the bigger shows. And with that influx of money, you're gonna see um, the corporatization of it and the growth of things like Spotify. So it's not surprising, you know, I still believe, I wouldn't say it's a meritocracy. I think if you're starting a podcast right now, it's very difficult to get audience share because There's so much content out there, not just in podcasting, but across the board. So, if you're just looking at trying to grab attention share in the attention economy, when there's Netflix and Hulu and HBO, you know, all the streaming platforms, and then, you know, everything that's going on with audio right now, including all the apps that are available. What are you creating that's going to be compelling enough to draw people away from whatever it is that they're paying attention to and pay attention to your thing? I think it's right. incredibly difficult right now, and we've benefited from being early on and getting a little bit of uh, you know a land grab that we've been able to hang on. To. Yeah, God forbid, we tried to start this thing now. I think it would have been incredibly difficult. But I do believe, that being said, that you know, quality rises to the top over the long haul, right? So it can.
1: It can. It doesn't always work that way.
0: Right, but if you're good, and it's not about getting millions of people to listen to, it's like, who are your hundred true fans or the thousand people that are interested in what you're doing? And podcasting is still, there's no barrier to entry, anybody can do it. And if you pick a particular niche, that you find compelling. There are other people out in the world that probably will agree with that. And well, you, you can.
1: You, one thing that w- helped you is you had three kind of three pronged niche. You were kind of like, you have the sobriety, you have the plant based, and you have the endurance power. And putting those three things together was kind of a calling card for you early on, right? Hel-
0: I guess, I mean, I never yeah. really thought of it that way. Yeah. I mean, that's probably true, but I just followed my curiosity. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and now, if you were just going to start a podcast and just say I'm going to talk to interesting people, like good luck. You know, right. even movie stars have tried to do that and failed. People who already have big right. following. So, it's not easy. And um, just because you have name recognition doesn't mean that you're actually good at this thing. It's a no. skill. Even though Obama, you know, is knocking out of the park yeah. with his first go. Yeah, uh, great first you know, guest. I think you know, like. If I go back and listen to my early podcasts, I'm sure I'd cringe. I would never do that, but right. you know, it's like you you grow and change with it. But I think with this influx of money, you're gonna see higher production quality, higher production value. And you're getting these scripted series. We see a lot of the true crime stuff. right? And um, and now these new narrative uh, storytelling, which is old radio, it's old time yeah. radio coming back. Packaged with movie stars and big big budgets, right. yeah. And the idea is that this becomes IP that you can develop into mini series, TV shows, movies, yeah. and the like. Like we crash, the Wondery series is being developed as a movie right now. Like there's a lot of that is going on right now. So there is a there there is a um, a lot of attention being paid to this. Yeah. But at the same time, like the way that I look at it is, I'm just going to keep doing my thing. I'll try to get better at it. And I believe that long form interesting conversations with compelling people is never gonna go out of style.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting the um, kind of family rivalry that's budding between Michelle and Barack. <laughs> Michelle's book kills it. <laughs> then yeah. Barack comes out, his book kills it. She has a great Spotify podcast that's doing great. He comes out with Bruce Springsteen, like right. six part series.
0: <laughs> it's, They're fueling it's each funny. other. It's funny, isn't it? 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 It's great. I wonder what those conversations are like at home. I'm sure they're very supportive of each other. <laughs> there's definitely some yeah. like poking though. Like, oh yeah, how many books did you sell today? <laughs> yeah.
1: We're gonna have to get the real story yeah, yeah, from, uh, from Sasha mm. and uh,
0: Malia at some stage. <laughs> but I, I will say like, as part of this New York Times article, this idea that you know, as podcasting becomes big business, there's unease that the diversity of voices in our earbuds never a strong suit of the industry, could be put at risk too. That may be true, but like, what are we supposed to do about it? Like, are we supposed to put protective measures? To what? I don't know. That's what I'm asking. To
1: make sure you have the right amount of percentage people that are have the no- Right, microphone. which brings
0: up the, the 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 broader discussion about, you know, content moderation and podcasting, which I, I don't know how you could possibly do that.
1: I think you have to just let, like you said, I think, you know, anybody can get into it. Anybody can buy a couple of sure microphones and get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could
0: do it on your iPhone and upload with Anchor. You don't even need sure microphones. Sure microphones are nice, though. Doesn't it sound. But they're not good? cheap. No, but they're what are they? Five hundred bucks? Something yes. like that. Yeah.
1: I mean, just go on TikTok and start dancing. You'll build a huge <laughs> following, and you can you can just create a podcast
0: out of that. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right, man. What do we got next?
1: Okay, I saw a movie um, this week called "Diving Deep: The Life and Times of Mike Degree." Mike Degree, uh, I mean, it was made by his wife, Mimi. Uh, Mike died tragically, I don't wanna spoil it, but um, he was an incredible underwater cinematographer and nature host. Mm -hmm. And um, you may never have heard of him, but he he was also a submarine pilot, a technical diver, um, he, you have seen his footage. If you've seen Blue Planet, you've seen Mike's work. If you saw the Titanic uh, documentary that James Cameron produced about finding the real Titanic, he was the DP on that. If you've seen the footage of the orcas playing with the sea lions on the beach, hunting them, he was the first guy to shoot that. Mm-hmm. So he's, he is a giant in that space. He's on the level of kind of in the Jacques Cousteau, um, Sylvia Earle category in terms of uh, an incredible all around you know, scientific mind and, and, and cinematographer and, and kind of blurring those lines. I mean, he is one of the, the truly great people in that space. And I didn't even know his story until mm-hmm. I watched this movie and it became, I think Mimi started to look at footage from his years uh, in, in the editing room, nine months after he passed away and started to put together this movie. Um, this is a great snapshot of who Mike was, where he grew up, how he got into it, um, a shark attack that he survived, um, his becoming a submarine pilot, his going to uh, the Gulf of Mexico after Deepwater Horizon, that disaster happened mm-hmm. and how he got so angry when the dispersants were dropped to, to sink all that oil and what dispersants do post oil spill um, to the ecosystem and to, uh, in general and how that kind of angered him and mobilized him. And she interviews a lot of luminaries from that space, including James Cameron several times. And I've never seen James Cameron, who as you all know, Avatar Titanic director. I've never seen him so disarmed in an interview. Usually mm. he's pretty kind of uptight and reserved. And he is just like really wide open in this interview. And there are reasons for that and you'll see why, but uh, but you, know, you credit Mimi for that. And just to just just to respect these watermen that people don't hear about and and how much he cared about sharks and how much he cared about the marine ecosystem and how curious he was and how excellent he was. All these you know, to become a great underwater cinematographer is one thing. To become a great technical diver is another thing. To become a submarine pilot is another thing. Yeah. To do all of that while raising a family and do it all in one lifetime is absolutely it's unfathomable to me. It's it's right. incredible.
0: Right. Well, yeah. I'll have to check it out. I haven't yeah. watched it yet, yeah. but um super interested in that. Yeah, yeah. I'll diving drop the link. diving deep. We'll put a link in the show notes about that. The Life and Times of Mike DeGroy. Degree degree. Like sp- he's his from wife, Mobile, his, Alabama, his, so his wife Mimi is the one who directed the movie. Yep, she made it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Um so technically this is show and tell. Yeah. So I thought I don't have any big specific show and tell thing, but I will w- I did want to say that I get like so many books in the mail, right? And, and often I get multiple copies of the same book, really, because they don't know that they sent it to me, or maybe the author sends it to me, and then the publisher sends it right. to me. And generally, these are you know books from for podcast guests or potential podcast guests. And I've had a habit of either donating them um, to libraries or to Goodwill but I thought I would do a giveaway. So I just I just grabbed a couple that were in my office right now. I've got, I have multiple copies of Adam Grant's Think Again. Mm. I've got a second copy of Jed Jenkins' Like Streams of the Ocean. Um, I got two copies of this amazing book that I'm just starting called Exercise by Daniel Lieberman, who's a Harvard professor. He was one of the um, pioneers of the barefoot running movement. Oh, really? He's part of Born to Run. and. I'm trying to get him on the podcast. This guy's got amazing stories and he's super cool. There's a petroglyph um, on the cover. There is, yeah. It's it's all about like human ancestry and movement. And is that know. a
1: petroglyph treadmill? Um,
0: <laughs> it, yeah, it is, I think. It's like, <laughs> wow, we were so excited. It's a Peloton on the cover. <laughs> is that cover. an ancient
1: Greek Peloton? <laughs> um,
0: the point is, Adam, stay on track here. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, I got a bunch of books that I wanna give away. So, uh, and plus I, I brought out, um, a sketch that Brian O'Hara did for me on YouTube. You can see this. So Brian, um, my artist friend, Brian, uh, who I've spoken about on the podcast before, he's the one who created our logo and he's got a bunch of artwork here in the new studio. He has a very interesting lens on the world. He he sees words backwards. He's not dyslexic, but he has a, a different relationship to um the written words. his like visual cortex yeah. than most people. So he he his art is in this kind of reverse hieroglyph style. Interesting. Um that makes it almost look like Arabic or something like that. Um and he he kind of encrypts his artwork with um positive messaging. Hmm. And this is just a piece that he like did really quick and ripped it out of his sketchbook and gave it to me, I've got a bunch of these. So I thought it'd be cool to give this away on the podcast. I'm not even sure what this says. I think are it's you gonna says, give it away? I think this says peace and plants. Oh, does Can it? You read this? Let's yeah.
1: see. Well, there's definitely peace. Yeah, plants. you see peace. Yeah,
0: I think it says peace and plants. Yeah. Um, And as you can see, for people who are just listening, it's just torn out of a a spiral notebook. It's amazing. It's not framed or anything like that. But I believe in Brian's talent. And I think one day he's gonna be a massive success as an artist. So this Mm. could be a valuable thing to hang on to. So how do I do this? I don't know. I mean, maybe just subscribe to the YouTube channel and leave a comment uh, below the video with why you think that you should um, get this book or this piece of art and we'll pick somebody. Perfect. How about that? I love it. Cool. So that's my big show and tell for today. Good show and tell. All right. Um, you wanna talk about Lawrence Ferlinghetti, right?
1: I do wanna talk about Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And this is kind of the teachable moment and maybe a hat tip to a, a, a legendary man in publishing and in poetry. Um, he died, you may have heard or, or read. Um, at 101 years old uh, recently. I guess it was February 23rd, the obituary. So either mm-hmm. that day or the, or the night before. Lawrence Ferlinghetti started a, a bookstore in 1953 called uh, City Lights in San Francisco. It's in North Beach, kind of in the transition zone between Chinatown and North Beach. Um, Dwight Garner, the literary critic at the New York Times, uh, called it almost certainly the best bookstore in the United States. For me, it is, you know, like it, it was. It's kind it's of a, a
0: historic h- landmark, a landmark, it's a holy temple, an icon of a of a time.
1: Yes, a holy temple of madmen and mm-hmm. and uh, and people who are looking for um, truth in this world. And um, basically, he started the bookstore within a couple, of years, and it was just all paperbacks at a time when paperbacks weren't really being sold too much. So he started this paperback bookstore, and because of that. It was like, he things were cheap and he acquired, a bunch of people were coming to San Francisco and they they, they showed up at his doorstep and a lot of them were poets. And in, within a couple of years, he launched a press to start publishing these people. One of them was Allen Ginsberg. And his story turns and the story of beat, the beat literary movement turns when he publishes Howl which I'm holding it up here. It's a 50s. Ferlinghetti
0: publishes howl. Yeah,
1: he, Ferlinghetti published Under City
0: Lights it. has a has like a, a banner.
1: That's right. And and he published it in, I think it was 59, 57, mm-hmm. 56. Publishes it in 1956. It's the first thing he published. It's Allen Ginsberg's howl because he performed it in City Lights. And um, a 56 page book that became a sensation. And partly because everyone heard about it, and they came in to buy it and the police, San Francisco police had an undercover cop come in and uh, I guess he was under 18 or had an under, someone, they were following someone and he they sold, the bookseller sold it to a, someone under 18 and it's sexually explicit and it talks about homosexuality and all sorts of things in his 56 pages, especially the poem Howl. Which is, as you know, one of the great poems. Um, mm-hmm. Because what it did was it broke verse from something stodgy, like poems of the of the old age, and and became much more, uh, you know, stream of consciousness style. And anyway, the bookseller was arrested. Ferlinghetti, the publisher of the book, was arrested. And the owner of the store was arrested, and it became a landmark <laughs> First Amendment case, where basically it was tried. Can you? you know, is this obscene literature? Can mm-hmm. you, you know, is it, or, or is it not? And is it protected by the first amendment? And it turned out it was, they, they had a good lawyer.
0: Was Kuntzler the lawyer on that?
1: I forget, you know, there's a James Franco movie that, that yeah, talks about I this. Saw I saw that a long it. time ago.
0: I, yeah. Something tells me William Kuntzler was the, was the lawyer. I couldn't. Yeah, they got, they got
1: like that. a heavyweight lawyer that came yeah. in and argued it, even though- Kuntzler's
0: the guy with the law, he did Chicago 7, okay. and, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a municipal case, but it had, National implications, and luckily, there was a federal uh, court case that they used as a precedent, and this kind of reinforced that precedent that mm-hmm. if there's social value, it can 't be considered obscene and so that 's what the argument was that and everyone was innocent of charges, and this poem became a sensation and 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 basically fueled this beat movement, which included Jack Kerouac um, Gary Snyder, you know Jack Kerouac mm-hmm. on the road um, and, and and all of those Gary Snyder, Neil Cassidy. And Ferlinghetti himself, who published Coney Island of the Mind, which is one of the most successful poetry books in history, one million copies in print. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, the legend was built right around that era. And what I think is one of the things he, he used to say is when life gets too awful, look for the lyric escape. That's something Ferlinghetti says. And that can be writing, it can be painting, it can be sex, you know, making love, it could be running, swimming, diving. Reach for a peace of mind. That's the lyric escape. And to me, City Lights was a lyric escape every time I entered that building. And so, you know, they gave us great literature, but they also kind of bridged. They were open to Zen Buddhism. They were open Mm -hmm. to kind of an expansion of the mind. It wasn't just about um, reading a great book. It was reading a great book that that allowed you to look for that expansion of your own self. It kind of was a precursor to a lot of the yoga stuff that kind of came right in the 60s and the yoga movement and 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 the personal development movement. So it's one of those really pivotal literary movement movements in our culture um, and Ferlinghetti was a foundation.
0: Right, and we're I don't know that we mentioned this, but we're bringing it up because he just passed away. Yeah,
1: yeah. no, I did mention it. Oh, you did, uh, okay. Yeah. He passed away at 101 um, years old.
0: Right, I mean, City Lights, the vortex of the counterculture movement of the '60s, it birthed the Beat uh, poet generation, mm-hmm. Neil Cassidy, all of that. Um, and you know, if you haven't visited City, I mean, still there, like if you, have, if you haven't, it closed down oh, during it did. the pandemic. Oh, it, so it did. It
1: just closed down, and then and then it raised a bunch of money through one of those mm. you know, GoFundMe, and so now it has four hundred thousand dollars to hopefully reopen, but they have not committed to reopening. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they can't let that fail. You can't let it fail now. Just like you can't let the strand fail in New York. No.
1: When, as a Stanford student, did, did you go into the city? Did you, did you kind of, was that on your radar city lights? Yeah, I mean, and, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember the first time that I went in there yeah. knowing full well the legacy and the, the history that's baked into that. Um, and, you know, I was, as a young person, fascinated with that period of time. I remember reading Tom Wolfe's, the electric Kool-Aid acid mm-hmm. test and it just blew my mind and reading on the road and all of that. So I love all that stuff. And, um, and it is interesting how you know, what is the the long-term legacy of that and how it's getting played out right now? Like everything from Lululemon mm-hmm. to this now swap in how we're thinking about free speech, right? Like well, spe- yeah. free speech being the vanguard of the progressive liberals during this period of time when people are getting arrested for selling copies of Howl to underage people to now that being a mirror image of what it once was.
1: Right, well, so like exactly to your point, it was the kind of, the the main the the overlords of the old culture of the like the 1950s the stodgy kind of uh, you know religious um, institutional culture that was saying no you can't say this this is the wrong thing to say and and basically arresting people for publishing a book because it had the wrong words in it and now we're making punk rock nonconformist stars out of mediocre minds. When progressives are doing that by right. saying now, you now progressives can't say this. are the
0: ones who are policing speech, exactly, it's, just, it's strange and disorienting to see that happening. And you know, part of that is rooted in in um, progressive progress, and part of it is you know perhaps a bridge too far in terms. of. Yeah, I think of, it,
1: it starts with again good intentions. Yeah. you know, we're not condoning hate speech here, and people, if you allow free speech to the maximum level. Hate speech has to be protected too. Like, like, a, there's a reason the ACLU have have filed cases to support, you know, KKK marches. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea is that you keep it open so that the uh, marginalized have a space to speak. Um, but that is by nature going to allow everyone to have a space to speak. But you know, we're not condoning hate speech at all. But we need to have the big picture in mind always when we're talking about freedom of speech. You know. Um, a good beat poet title for the current age. Jason was saying this before we went on. Please stick to the approved words. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that would yeah, be yeah. the great the great poet title right, <laughs> of yeah. the current age.
0: Right. Cause that's that's like a very provocative, punk rockish title to have in this moment, right? Right, now. right, yeah. right.
1: And that doesn't mean that we don't understand where it's coming from or don't have empathy to people who felt marginalized and, and want to make things better, but You can't control making things better by um, saying what you can say and when you can say it and how you can say it. Because if that was true, we wouldn't have old people getting pushed over on the streets. Everything would be cool, but it's not cool.
0: Yeah. All right, let's do some listener questions.
1: Okay, listener questions. Let's hear from Josh from Raleigh, North Carolina.
0: Hey, Adam. Hey, Rich. This is Josh from Raleigh, North Carolina calling. Uh, My question is an aspirational riff off of the conversation that Rich recently had with Lexi Pappas um, about the importance of surrounding oneself with high vibration people. So my question for both of you is um, if you could have a road trip, a pilgrimage, some type of uh, adventure with three people, living or dead, who would they be? Uh, For me, uh, it would be Rich Roll. Ram Das and Father Richard Rohr. Uh, sorry, Adam. Please play this on air. And thanks so much, guys. Much love. Namaste. Oh my God. Namaste,
1: Josh. I can't wow. come. Wow. What if? What can I be the driver?
0: <laughs> That's very generous. I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm flattered. Oh yeah. You're. I wouldn't you're, pick you're, me. You're bemused. You wouldn't yeah. pick yourself. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go. It's yeah. your road trip. Who would you? Who do you got? Me. Yeah.
1: Um. I, I divide it up into the living and the undead. In mm. the living, I'm pricking Barack Obama because he's my favorite podcaster. <laughs>
0: um, you're fired. <laughs> Teak not on. <You're>
1: <laughs> and Elizabeth Gilbert because she's pretty chatty and she'd be fun.
0: Right. Yeah. Because when you're going on a road trip, yes. there's lots of things to consider. Yes. Like how often is this person gonna need to pull over and go to the bathroom? Good, what are their dietary point. restrictions? Like, is this per- Like, are you gonna be able to do the long hang as you well, go all the way across like, the... So you
1: have Teak Nan Han, old timer, who's right. seen it all and Barack Obama. They could talk, There's, I think you'd have a lot of like great insights in Elizabeth Gilbert, all very well-read people. I'd learn a lot. I
0: would just like to sit in the back seat and listen to Barack and Liz Gilbert get chatty. Yeah. Which would be good. And Teak Han would just like- Chime in with you. He'd just drop a little pearl every yeah. once in a while.
1: You know, Thich Nhat Hanh was, as you may or may not know, a giant uh, in in. He was a Vietnamese, ref uh, not refugees Vietnamese uh, monk monk who ended up having like early mindfulness meditation mm-hmm. um, uh, influence. And he was uh, he 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 and Martin Luther King Jr. were very tight. So my undead is Bruce Lee because he's a cool movie star. John Coltrane because you know. He's him, and Anne Frank in the Liz Gilbert role.
0: Did you intentionally make these sort of uh, appropriately diverse? Also, you have for each the living <laughs> and the undead. You have you have an African American, and Asian, and a woman.
1: Well, it, <laughs> I'm trying to be. I want to yeah. make it. I want you know what? I yes, I thought about it, but. Um so woke. I probably would have. I probably would have. You know, it probably would be John Coltrane, Bob Marley, and somebody else if I had to pick. Uh-huh. But um, in this sense, since we're on live on the air here, not live, but on the air, I figured um, I have so many things I'm interested in. You know, I'm not even into martial arts, but I saw the Bruce Lee documentary recently, and it was either him or Napoleon, and I went with him. Mm. Yeah,
0: Napoleon would be cool. He might be. He might be a pain in the ass though too. He'd want to drive. Yeah, <laughs> he'd wanna, drive. wanna be in control yeah. the whole time. But he, we'd have to like strap blocks on his feet so he could yeah. reach the pedals. Yeah, <laughs> Um. this is tough. I get asked this question a lot, like Do you who would really? you have dinner with? I, I always stumble. I can never come up with anything that interesting. I mean, I just, I just riffed off this off the top of my head, but for the living, I had Michael Stipe, David Attenborough and Richard Branson. Okay. Or po- possibly Haruki Murakami. Okay. That would be cool. Okay. But, you know, I don't know.
1: Michael Stead, because he's lead singer of your favorite all time band. All time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He's, he's, he, he's, he's a must. Yeah. But I could go with Barack, Liz okay. Gilbert. You know, I, yeah. these are all cool people. Like, it's also about the curation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the Because point. you're not going to be talking the whole time or listening the whole time. Like, are these people going to get along with each other?
1: You need to have, first <laughs> yeah. of all, you need to have men and women because yeah. you, you have to have a nice balance. You can't, yes. And will that's they get true. along was a big thing. That's why I'm, I'm, I think my living uh, car is, is, is pretty rock solid. I, I right. don't think that goes anywhere. But the, the, the dead, you, you just don't know how, John Coltrane and Anne Frank are gonna get along. Right. I think they'll be fine.
0: But if you have Liz Gilbert or you have like Brene Brown, like they'll, they get to the heart of things quickly. Yes, but right? maybe maybe almost too quickly. Maybe <laughs> yeah, when, you're, when you're dealing with, <laughs> with uh, 3000 miles ahead of you. Yes, um, I don't feel like they would run out of things to talk about though. No, definitely not, you know. Um,
1: who's your, who's your-
0: The undead, undead I got Marcus Aurelius oh. because you know, what is it like to be the most powerful man in the world and be a philosopher king.
1: And be played by uh Russell Crowe. Uh
0: no, he played he Russell Russell Crowe didn't play Marcus Aurelius. He, oh no, he played. Uh Marcus Marcus Aurelius was the um was played by uh Rich uh I'm blanking. Oh, on that's it. right. He, he was, just passed away. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Richard Harris. Richard
0: Harris, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, JC, Jesus Christ. I mean, why not? Let's get to the bottom of this, right?
1: <laughs> I had Jesus on my <laughs> list. I crossed it's so, him out for it's, Anne such Frank.
0: A, it's a cop out, though. <laughs> it's like, oh, Abraham Lincoln and Jesus Christ, and you know, I know I didn't want. But like, are you going to not pick him if you can pick anybody? And let's 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 get to the root of things. It's pretty famous, right? And while we're at it, Bill W. Why not? Bill Withers. Bill W. From the Secret Society the founder, the co-founder of The Rooms. I don't know. (laughs) You don't? No. Wow. It really has, it it, it has been uh, kept anonymous at the level of press, radio and film. He's at one of the co-founders of AA. Oh, okay. Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson. Um, But, you know, I don't know, like that's not the most diverse list either. No. I don't think there's a right. I feel answer. like I feel maybe one of the reasons why I struggle with this a little bit is that I get to do this every week on the podcast. I like m- the podcast is my version of right. going on a road trip with somebody I want to talk to.
1: Right, and if you listen to your podcast, you're getting that, and you're also mm-hmm. getting the. Uh, that's it's almost like the Barack Obama Bruce Springsteen is half of the car.
0: Come at me, Barack. Exactly. Come at me. It's there's a- an open seat. I'll kick Adam out of here right away. If Barack wants to come and step <laughs> in want, to roll on, you're fired.
1: I'm out of here? Yeah,
0: he's shown <laughs> his chops. He can handle himself behind a microphone. That's true. Who knew? There's a job opening. What
1: about the boss?
0: Uh, no. I, that might be tricky. Oh, all right. could be good. I don't know. Okay. I don't, I s- I don't see Bruce coming to- over
1: here every week. If Barack wants to come here every every other week, I will.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, he's got it. He's going to get a pad down in Point Doom. He's exactly. going to ride his Ducati I over mean, here.
1: Po- podcasting is a meritocracy. I will have to give <laughs> yeah. way. I will give way.
0: All right. Let's move on. All right. Cool. This
1: is another interesting question we don't get every day from Tara in Long Beach, California. Hi, this is Tara. I'm from Long Beach, California. Tara. Tara. Absolutely fine to play this clip on the air. I wanted to call and clarify my prior question. So, my question is. Um, I'm a family physician who works full-time. I have twin three-year-olds, and I am trying to dabble in ultra running. My wife is supportive of my running, but in a way that
0: can be frustrating and difficult for our relationship. So my question is, how do I best balance these three things that I have going on without disrupting the balance of my relationships as well, specifically
1: with longer runs on the weekends and time away from family? What is
0: a good way to address these issues and have everyone's needs met? Thanks guys, bye. Um, This is a great question. I think this is relatable for anybody who uh, gets involved in endurance sports. You know, the the term uh, uh, Ironman widow uh, exists for a reason. Oh really? Because these pursuits can often end in, cataclysmic relationship results, <laughs> yes. if not handled appropriately. I so figured you
1: are the perfect person to ask this question. Well,
0: it's not easy. I mean, this is the first thing I would say is, is you're set up for failure right out of the gate mm. because this is a very difficult hat trick to accomplish. Um, and I think to launch into this, the first thing to bear in mind is you can't excel at all of these things every single day. Like there's this idea of how am I gonna balance all of these things so that I'm, giving them an appropriate amount of attention every single day. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it because you can't do that. You can't be at your best as a physician, as a partner, as a parent, and as an athlete all the time. Like it's just not rigged that way. Mm. So let go of that fantasy out of the gate and try to configure a schedule and a structure that allows you to kind of toggle between these pursuits Um, understanding that on certain days, your priority is gonna be in one of these buckets or two of these buckets, but not all of these buckets. So that over the course of a month or a week, they're all getting an adequate amount of attention, but not all on the same day or at the same time. So structure and scheduling, super important. I think that you should craft that schedule um, in cooperation and partnership with your wife so that your wife is part of organizing what these days are gonna look like, that your wife is participating in the allocation of of you know, your time and, and energy and to come to that conversation, trying or endeavoring to the best of your ability to structure your training at periods of time that don't compromise Um, the goals that your wife has, or the parenting needs that you both mutually share. So that might mean that your runs have to be super early in the morning before anybody's awake or late at night when everybody's asleep. And I understand that you have a full-time job. Uh, You're not a professional ultra runner though, right? Right. Nobody's paying you to do that. This is something you choose to do, but you've gotta make the choice of how you apply that in a way that's not disruptive to your family. You already know that. Um, And that means, you know, Finding those windows of opportunity that don't uh, put, you know, your wife's schedule at peril and create this tension in the relationship. Um, the other thing is, you don't want to ever set yourself up to be overtrained or overly fatigued. You've got to be able to show up 100% for your kids and for your wife when you're not training and you're not working, um, so that. Uh, so that that doesn't become an additional drag on top of the hours spent when you're not at home. Mm. Um, And I think what's been helpful to me in doing this is twofold. First, anticipate your wife's needs and your kids' needs in in advance so that you're planning for that. um, And you're not like showing up you know, oh, you didn't get the groceries because you had to go running or something like that. They, right. These are the things that, like, are small things in isolation, but they add up and they they can really, you know, derail a relationship. Right. So, being ahead of the curve in terms of um, understanding and anticipating what your wife is going to need and 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 fulfilling those needs before perhaps she's even aware that she needs them filled. So mm. that way, you're demonstrating through your behavior, repetitive behavior, that you're conscious uh, of. The fact that you're ultra running is perhaps taking you away from the r- relationship more than she would like, but you're showing up in ways that um, are telling her like you're here, right? Even when you're not there, you're actually there. Mm. And then when you are there to be a hundred percent, like when I was training for Ultraman at my peak, I've told this story before, but you know, I come back from like a 30 mile run or a, you know, six hour bike ride and I'd walk in the house, like just, wasted and Julie would like hand me a baby and be like, your turn, bye. You know, I'm gonna go do my thing. And I couldn't be like, I need a nap or I gotta like shower. It's like, no, you gotta be on point, Right. right? It's your turn. And by respecting that and making sure that I was present when those, you know, moments arose, that's how we were able to kind of keep everything moving and on track. If I was just like, no, I can't, or, or um, sorry, I'm. I got a train right now. Like that's not going to work. So, were there um,
1: times where she pushed back against like? Well, she was very. Suppo- I
0: mean, I was lucky because I had a very supportive. She's all it.
1: about you finding like, like. Right, like and that doesn't
0: mean that it wasn't hard because right. I, we're talking about a ton of time, and also, you know, we were going through some financial. St- it was right. like a very difficult period, and and you know, I credit. Julie, tremendously for, for really you know, being an incredible support in a way that I think most partners um, wouldn't and can't be expected to, honestly. Right. So it's understandable, like what, you're gonna go run for, for five, like we, we, have, we have twin baby, like what right. are you doing? You know, right. like you gotta be here. So that's why I think anticipating your partner's needs and the needs of your children is so important. Um, I also think that you have to choose your moments. Like I said at the outset, it's impossible to excel at all of these things every single day. And if you attempt this, you're gonna fail in all the categories. You're not gonna be able to train like a pro, so don't try to. And there's gonna be days where maybe you have some big run on your calendar and this is really important to you, but. Something went haywire at home, and the kids need you, and you got to be like, I got to. Sh- what are my priorities? Like, right. I got to show up for my kids. I got to show up for my wife. Like, what is most important in the grand scheme of things? Is it really worth derailing your relationship for ultra running? Like, ultra running is something you can do your whole life if you do it responsibly, um, and so that doesn't mean that that your needs shouldn't be met either. Um, it's important if this is bringing you happiness and fulfillment that you should have the freedom and the, the license to like do the things that you enjoy doing, which is why communication is so important, right? And if this is important to you, it's incumbent upon you to communicate the importance of it to your wife so that she really understands. Like, does she really understand? Why is this important to you? Why are you doing this? Um, and the more that you can have that uh, channel of communication open with your wife, I think you'll, be in a better place to engender the empathy and support that, that you're looking for. But that's a two-way street. You yeah. gotta give it in return as well. Yeah. You can't expect her to support you unless mm-hmm. you're supporting her in kind. So what is it? What is, her, what is your wife's <clears throat> ultra running? Like what is it that she would like to be right. doing um, and how can you go out of your way to make sure that you're supportive to her in that regard in the way that you would like to be supported?
1: It's great advice. Um, I can't offer anything to really to this discussion other than, because I'm not doing 30 mile But you
0: have a baby and you're trying to do this Goggins thing and you've got April at home. So how's that going?
1: I had to talk talk her into the Goggins thing. Mm. She was not really feeling the Goggins (laughs) thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because for her, she's Uh like with the baby almost all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I have my work, which at least allows me, even if I'm in the same apartment, I'm in a psychic space that is my own. And she's not really permitted a, psych or, a psych, psychic space that is her own too often, and so when I run training, often I'll take the baby out with me as, in a stroller run.
0: Right. That was the other thing I had on my yeah. uh, list of things to respond to. Like yeah. get the get the twin, you know, um, baby carriage thing. What yeah. What's it called? I haven't had babies in a while. Strollers. What do you call them? Yeah, stroller. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while, and, uh, but they're still uh, called God strollers. And you know, she lives in Long Beach. There's like those yeah. paths along the, the the ocean, you know, right. where you can like push a stroller and pretty get soon they can
1: ride bikes alongside mm-hmm. you or whatever. But so I did have to talk her into that, and it just I, and it just took that. I explained to her why it was important to me as best I could, even though I couldn't really explain to you why it was important to me. But but she understood that. She never didn't want me to do it. And it doesn't really show up as much in the running. Because for me, most of my runs are a little over an hour, um, sometimes less, sometimes a little over an hour. Um, and if I wanna do a long one for me, it's like a 10 mile run usually. So that's like, it's, it's, not, it's not like a 30 mile run. But swimming, um, at least doing the dives in Malibu, that has become a lot less frequent than it used to be for mm-hmm. me. I try to get us out there once a week, but that inc- includes taking everybody out getting a beach tent set up, doing the whole thing. Otherwise, as, I can As somebody
0: uh, who, who, who participated in that yeah. with you, I can, I can affirm that that is a languishing affair <laughs> that goes on for hours unnecessarily. <laughs> I'm like, are we gonna swim and get this done? We're, what are we doing? We're looking for our octopus I teacher. Know, like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm out for a workout and you're looking for octopus.
1: <laughs> yes, that's yeah. right. We're, we're,
0: we're getting in touch with our <laughs> Lyric know. Escape.
1: Yeah, um, I'm
0: like, no wonder she's like, what are you doing? Get well, back no, but here. She
1: comes out with us. So she's only yeah. been able to, she went one time. It's, it, she doesn't like 55 degree water. So for mm. her, it's like, if the vis is good and it's warmish, she's down. And so I ha- we have made it possible for her to go with the group and then I, I did my own thing after we've done that once, but it does take like, I can't expect her to go sit on the beach when the wind is howling and it's getting sandblasted with the baby while I go on a little swim. So that is not happening as often as it used to, uh, but she loves the beach also. So she likes being out there. So it's really about the communication aspect is important and mm-hmm. you do have to kind of sublimate, especially knowing that I have four by four coming up basically after four by four, she prefers kind of workout, mat workouts with this trainer from our gym that we no longer go to because of the pandemic. Um, and so we've been having him help us sometimes. and. And after the four by four 48, we're gonna prioritize more of those workouts that she can do um, and and then I'll, I'll do, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we're just doing that. So that's kind of the thing she wants to do to, the, to you know, how am I supporting her in kind, that's the next step. So my running, i will probably do a little less mileage every month and build in this other uh, strength aspect. And that's just how it's gonna have to be because you right. can't do it all. Right, Yeah.
0: next question. Yeah, sorry,
1: I made that about me. No, it's good.
0: You're in it right now. You got a baby. I'm in it. You're trying feel to do you. something hard. Like... I feel you,
1: Tara. All right, Emily from Minneapolis.
0: Hi, Rich and Adam. This is Emily calling from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and this is A-OK to play on the air. I was just calling today because I've been listening for years and am almost two years sober and about 98% vegan. So you could say I am drinking the Kool-Aid but the reason for my call is where are you both consuming information at this point? I'm curious what kind of podcast you might be listening to and also media and books and things like this where you're getting that inspiration from. So I look forward to hearing this on air. Thanks so much. Mm. Adam? Yes. You wanna take a crack? She wanted to hear from both of us. Oh, you want me to go first again? Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, Probably because my answer is gonna be so disappointing. So go no, ahead. No, you're,
1: come on. I'm Right now I'm reading James McBride's Good Lord Bird, which um, is about, basically it's a uh, historical fiction. It's all about the John Brown uh, abolitionist, who was this kind of had an army of, uh, uh, of abolitionists, and they went and they wreaked habit, uh, havoc on all sorts of slave owners in Missouri. So he was in Kansas, and they would run across the border and just kill, <laughs> kill mm-hmm. slavers, and and you know deliver God's justice. And it's really hilarious. It's actually um, kind of uh, an offbeat, hilarious take on this real thing that happened. Um, James McBride, author of *Color of Water*, which won sorts—I think it won National Book Award as well mm-hmm. or Pulitzer or something—and um, then I didn't read that, but that was a, a, an incredible memoir about his mother. Um, Kill him and Leave* was the first McBride book that I read, and that's about James Brown. It's—it's it's remarkable. I found it in some bookstore. No, not many people have read it. It's like a 200-page yeah, book, and it's—it's—it's it's, it's sensational. Um, and this book is—is is magnificent. So I'm reading that. And I'm listening to Save the Cat Writes a Novel. <laughs> that's part of my, it's my audio book right now, part of my deep dive. Save into the, the Cat is
0: the screenwriting thing, right? Right,
1: and so there's novelist kind of took it and spun it. It's it's under that banner, but it's 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 for novelists. Right. And she takes the same lessons and spins it and kind of uses fiction. Um, and it's helped me just kind of like think, cause I'm between drafts on, on a novel that I've been, Writing and um, I'm just kind of listening to it and see if I can, you know, I, this is I'm in, after two drafts. I'm looking at like a ten draft kind of plan, and so I'm I'm listening to it now. And then the podcast I listen to, aside from the Rich Roll podcast, which I do listen to,
0: mm, um, okay, I listen to Barack. Might have to wait. Well, I, yeah, it's true. I am listening to trying to, to hold the, on to that seat. <laughs> I listen to.
1: I love listening to the Rich Roll podcast. <laughs> uh, I also listen on. to every morning. Uh, pardon the interruption. This shouty sports podcast, and uh, occasionally the Daily and Revisionist History is a regular for me as well.
0: Mm. You know, Good Lord Bird is a is a show starring Ethan Hawke. I right knew now. that
1: it became a show. Mm-hmm. I've been wanting to read been... the book for ages. Then it became a show, and I thought, no, I'm reading the book first. Yeah, yeah.
0: I love Ethan Hawke. He's fabulous. We talked about his TED talk, didn't we?
1: Yeah, uh, we, roll on. We did. We yeah, did we did.
0: T- I still want to get him on the podcast. I just listened to an. Speaking of podcasts, I listened to an interview that Ethan did with. Uh, I think it was on. It was either on the Watch or the Big Picture, like those those Ringer uh, TV movie podcasts. Yeah. It was great. Like, I, I love listening to that guy talk and he was talking about Good Lord Bird and how much he loved the book and, well, the, the and book, how was this passion of his to play this character, even though he thought he was too young to do it. Like he thought a little bit young. this should be uh, like Jeff Bridges or somebody like that who was older, but apparently I haven't watched the show yet, but it's been very well received.
1: Yeah, I mean, and well, the the, the story is told through the, the eyes of an eight-year-old or 12-year-old boy, something like a young boy slave who John Brown liberates kind of mm-hmm. against his will and uh, mistakes him for a girl. And so then he goes around dressed as a girl, which saves his life. Uh, um, but he he's like liberated against his will, goes with John Brown and John Brown is is prone to all sorts of like crazy sermons. Like yeah. you can't eat unless he's done two hour prayer. Right, or something. right.
0: well, he's all crazy fire and brimstone. Yeah, like yeah, he's yeah. over the top, like all the time. Yeah. Right. Um, I said at the outset that uh, my answer might be a little disappointing. I mean, here's the thing. So much of my information diet is dictated by the podcast. Like yeah. who's the guest who's coming up? Yeah. Typically there's a book or a bunch of podcast interviews with that person, a deep dive into their life that involves you know, 30 tabs open on my browser. Yeah. So I immerse myself in the world of the upcoming guest and try to inhabit that in the most method way that I possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> and that consumes most of my time. In terms of news, um my kind of go-to for news is generally Twitter. Like I yeah. follow tons of journalists, and I follow journalists of of different mindsets and and worldviews. So I keep things mixed up by in my feed in that way. Um and so rather than you know, I'll open up the New York Times or or the LA Times, but I tend to consume my news through Twitter. Mm. I don't know how many people still do that. But, no, I, I um, do a lot
1: of that too. I get to a lot of links, but it ends up being. And
0: then I can read different takes yeah. on the same story yeah. or different perspectives on, on what's going on. Yeah. Um, in general, you know, curiosity leads the way for me. And that's really what the podcast is about in terms of podcasts that I consume and listen to. I don't and people are always surprised to hear this but I don't listen to a lot of podcasts that are in the vein of what I do. Mm. Like there's there's a handful of other people that are kind of would be considered, you know, kind of similar to this show. Yeah. And unless I have a guest that I'm researching um who's on one of those shows, I typically don't do that because it it sort of feels like this is what I do, and that feels like homework. Yeah. As opposed to enjoyment for me. Yeah. So I end up listening to podcasts that pique my interest in other areas. Like I, I also I love everything Malcolm does. So I listen to revisionist history and his other various shows, Broken Record. Um I like I love conversations about movies and television. So I listen to um, the big picture and the watch. I do subscribe to the daily. I don't listen to all of them. I kind of pick and choose with that. Yeah, um, I still you know, old school, I still love Mark Marin, the WTF podcast. Um, I've been enjoying Mike Berbiglia's podcast, Working It Out, which is fun. Have you ever listened to his? No. It's pretty cool. like he'll bring on most of his guests are comics, but he brings them on and he has kind of a, a, a series of questions that he asks all of them. But the premise is really I'm working on this material and let me like try it out on you and give me feedback. And then they're like, I'm working on this. And then they're like, so it's like a note session. That's great. Which gives you a glimmer, like a glimpse into the creative process Mm, and how to, and also this is a very important thing for anybody who's trying to do anything creative, like how you give and receive feedback and notes is really important. Mm. Like can you, um, like who you choose to bring into that circle is important how you ask the question and how you receive the response and how the person provides the response. Like there are people who are really good at giving feedback and doing it in a conscious way that's constructive um, versus destructive or just negative. And I think there's an art to that. And when you can be in a receiving mode and set your ego aside and actually hear what the person is saying and not be reactive and kind of embrace it, even if they're like, I don't like this, I think you, completely lost the thread with this. And you're like, oh, that's, can you be curious and interested in why that person feels that way? Mm. I think is fun and helpful. And I think Mike is really good at that himself. Mm. And he's so fun and engaging to listen to. So I like that. Um, I listened to Pivot with Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher for yep. business. Um, I love Brian Koppelman's The Moments, which is all about um, conversations with people like, what is your inflection moment in your career? That's okay. kind of the focus of that. Uh, just for fun, I love the rewatchables. When Bill Simmons, like, you know, talks about old movies, yes. like, you know, that, that you love to go back to. Um, I love Rob Bell's podcast. I like Pete Holmes. You made it weird. Like, I'm always mixing up my my podcasting I like it. kind of lineup. Um, but those are just some that I've been listening to lately. Love it. And I watch a lot of docs. I watched the. Um, I watched the. Uh, you see everything. No, I don't see everything. But I. I I try to see as much as possible. Yeah, um, I watched the the first half of the Billie Eilish documentary last night. Okay, which is fantastic. Really? Yeah. Is that really Netflix? Good. On Apple, Apple. Apple Plus. Yeah.
1: What else is on your radar for movies right now?
0: <sighs> I don't know. It's weird. Like the Golden Globes were last night, yeah. and I didn't watch it, but I was kind of scrolling through Twitter and looking at all the people that won, and I was amazed at how few of the movies or shows that I've actually seen.
1: Yeah. One of those. Well, yeah. it's one of those years you're not going to the movies, you know. I like, know. Yeah, I
0: know. Lots of good movies to be streamed at home in the coming weeks, though. All
1: right, stay tuned. Roll so, on, that's it. listeners.
0: Yeah, I think we did it. Are we done? We rocked it. I think we're done. We're gonna land this plane. How? Um, awesome, man. Thank you. How do you feel?
1: I feel good. I I, I like this one.
0: I think, I think I'll listen good.
1: to it. <laughs> Are you
0: night. gonna do you do you go back and listen to no, Roll On? No,
1: I don't. <laughs> No, hell you say. No. Um, I maybe once or twice. I try to I, I'm trying to get better.
0: You're you've been mm, doing this eight and a half years. Yeah, but I can't go back and listen to old shows. I never no. do that. I never do that. No. I can't just because I can't, I can't, can't I can't bear, listen to my own voice. can't bear to no. you hear yourself. I'm with you. Um but what you can do is you can follow Adam on the socials at Adam Skolnick, on at Rich Roll on all the places. I might do a clubhouse. Soon. Are you gonna do a clubhouse? Well, I listen to My friend Neil Strauss did a conversation with Jared Leto on Clubhouse the other night, and I thought it was great. It was super fun, and people got to ask Jared questions. And I was like, "This is cool. Okay, we'll do something there." I don't know. Anyway, let me know. Clubhouse. At Rich Roll? At Rich Roll? For that or no? I don't know. Well, I I don't know what I would do there. I'm just you know, I just thought I I had a good experience listening and. You know how many thought,
1: people were in the clubhouse you
0: know? i mean it maxed out i think they max out at 5000 and then there's like spillover rooms um so it was you know look he's like a huge movie star right yes. so it was like everybody wanted to hear what he had to say yeah but it was fun um all right if you want to have your question considered for a future roll on episode again leave us a message on our voicemail 424-235-4626 pick up a copy of voicing change at yes. richroll.com slash VC. Check out the show notes to see links to everything we talked about today on the episode page at richroll.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, all the places. Um, we got a clips channel on YouTube. If you dig the short stuff, including, um, The answers to all the questions we asked, we're uploading those there too. So you can find that at Rich Roll Podcast Clips. You just search it on YouTube and it's linked up in the show notes and all that stuff. That's it. Done. I wanna thank everybody who helped put on today's show. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering production, show notes, interstitial music, and matters sundry and unlisted. Mm. Jack of all trades behind the scenes. Blake Curtis for his video wizardry, filming and editing all of these. It's no small task. Jessica Miranda for whipping up the graphics. We got Allie Rogers on deck today for portraits. What's up, Allie? Georgia Whaley for copywriting. DK, our man, for advertiser relationships and theme music, as always by Tyler Trapper and Harry. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for the love. I don't take your attention for granted. And uh, see you back here in a couple of days with another episode and back with Adam in two weeks. Yeah. I'll be here. To tell us about the four by four by 48. If you you might have to wheel me in, but I'll be here. You might. And just, just remember when you're out there and you're hurting, yes, that the Iron Cowboy is doing an Iron Man a day. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> Damn you, Iron Cowboy. <laughs> All right.
0: Peace. Plants. How? Hey.